Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Glad to have you all with us for a very special edition of Political Rewind. We've given all of our panelists a day off because I've been looking forward for some time to uh, having a conversation with our guest today, Jonathan Alter. Jonathan Alter, you know him, I'm sure, over the years as of one of the best-known political analysts uh, in uh, in television. He's worked for NBC. He's been He's done his work for MSNBC. He previously was with Newsweek magazine. Uh, So a long career as a writer and on-air analyst. But John Alter, I'm going to bring you right into the conversation because um, I want to tell our listeners that you and I used to spend a little time together. We'd run into each other with some regularity back in the days when we were both out on the campaign trail covering presidential politics. I just want to tell your listeners that when Bill and I would see each other out on the campaign trail, I would often make a beeline for him, not just because I knew that he knew what was going on in Georgia, but I just felt you had a real kind of sense. I just really remember just appreciating your overall take on where a particular campaign was going. And, you know, we both go back so long, it could have been 1988, 92, 96, you know, and and all of them, all of them. And, you know, when you when you're on the, you know, bus on the press bus or press plane, you you learn pretty quickly who you can who you can rely on for a smart take on what's happening. And Bill was always at the top of my list. So. Well, anyway. you're you're very. That's a generous comment because you were, you know, uh, you know. I was just a local news guy. You were doing at those days. You were at Newsweek. Your articles every week were uh, highly anticipated. So thank you for uh, the compliment. But but let's talk about uh, politics. Let's talk about your uh, book. Uh, I I do think it's important to start the conversation with where we stand right now in the. Uh, 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 November election process, you got you gained some fame back on election night in 2000. <laughs> you were on, on NBC, uh, right? I, yeah, I, you know what I'm yeah. going to say. Back in 2000, uh, that we all remember that night, Florida. Well, it's it's uh, it's it's uh, Gore. No, it's Bush. Uh, call the state for one and the uh, we we had no idea as the uh, night went on, who had won that election. And, and John, you gained fame because you were the first person to say this entire election is headed to the courts. And how interesting to think about that and what we're living through right now in terms specifically of President Trump threatening to send the 2020 election to the courts. Back then, it was almost like a child's play that it was one state this year, we could see the court battles over who won any number of states. Uh, talk about that a little. Yeah, we could. That was an extraordinary night in 2000. You know, earlier in the evening, I had found out um, from some friends in Florida that uh, a lot of uh, voters had voted for Pat Buchanan unintentionally when they intended to vote for for Al Gore. These were Jewish, some Jewish voters who you know who detested Pat Robertson as a as an anti-Semite, but because uh, of this confusing butterfly ballot, uh, they had cast their ballots uh, wrongly. And so I, you know, I went on with Tom Brokaw and Katie Couric at about nine o'clock in the evening and told the country about that. And then at about three o'clock in the morning, two or three o'clock in the morning, I went back out and said, you know, this was when Gore had withdrawn his concession to Bush. And I was remembering uh, writing about Franklin Roosevelt's first election for governor of New York in 1928. And it was a very, very close election. And uh, he put out the word, his campaign put out the word that lawyers were on the overnight train to Albany to fight uh, over this election. And 
I just remembered that from my research on FDR. And I said, you know what? Lawyers are going to get on, you know, the first flight out this morning, the day after the election in 2000, and fly to Florida and start fighting about this. And this is all going to court and recounts are more art than science. A lot of uh, Republicans got really upset with me because I, I said that I thought that because Gore had won uh, the popular vote, that he would have a kind of a uh, symbolic advantage. And, 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 you know, they said, well, the Constitution says who wins. You know, I, now, of course, I knew that, um, but it became pretty controversial, and I was hatcheted in a couple of Republic, uh, conservative magazines. Uh, but, you know, recounts are more art than science. And so I think that we should pray that it's not a close election. Remember, this president is the first president or candidate for president in American history who has not stood up for a peaceful transfer of power. Since George Washington did it in, uh, you know, after his, his, his first term as uh, his second term as president in, in 17, early 1797, and he decides he's going to leave office without fighting about it. Right. Without fighting to stay it, but before that bill in all of human history, the only way anybody left office was they were carried out of office after they had croaked. Right. There was there really was no such thing, even in the you know democracy of ancient Greece. Basically, there was no such thing as a peaceful transfer of power. This is one of the United States' great contributions to the world. And we have a president who has such contempt for the values on which our country was founded. This doesn't have anything to do with being liberal, conservative. This is about the values our country was founded on, that he can't just say the words Yes, I, I want to have a peaceful transfer of power, you know, and, and it's it's really upsetting. And, you know, I'm still not recovered from that that first debate and him not being able to say that he was against white supremacy. And that that itself was just even though we've come to expect this from him, it was jarring and dispiriting and sad and disgusting, frankly. But. Part of that was also just that he will he's made it clear he will not accept the outcome of this election. But at least if there's a landslide, you won't have a, le a leg to stand on. And that's where Georgia comes in. You know, it's Sorry fascinating so when you put it in the it. historical. That's fine. When you put it in historical perspective and mention Washington, of course, we know that Washington could have continued as president uh, and said, no, I mean, you've got to move right. on. I've got to retire. And when King George right. heard that Washington had refused to stay on to run for another term, he was flabbergasted. The king could not imagine someone abdicating power voluntarily, peacefully. And we compare that to what you're talking about today. Now, am I saying that if it's a close election that Trump should concede, you know, right away? No. Uh, there, if it's a close election, there will be litigation, and you could say that that's defensible litigation. What I'm talking about is if it's not very close, I think he still will try to find any excuse he can to not give up power. And one of the reasons is he knows, you know, former inspector general of the Department of Justice said that he is looking over his tax returns. You know, he's in a lot of legal jeopardy and if, if he uh, when he leaves the White House. And worse than that, in some ways, for him, is that he owes between 300 and $400 million in the next three to four years with no way to pay for it. So how will he pay back? And nobody else is going to lend him money right now. He's going to have to go and find some of his thuggish friends around the world to cut him into some deals and become part of the thugocracy. You know, he's already in the Vladimir Putin's club, but he's going to have to get in deeper in order to come up with the Benjamins to dig himself out of the financial hole that he's in. And the, really the only way that he can do that is as, is as president. Uh, it's very, very hard for All him right. to do that as a former president. All right. I appreciate you giving us your uh, insights about what we have to look forward to in the weeks ahead. But, you know, what? let's, let's <laughs> talk about this. Uh, let's No, let's talk about this. Real, I've got to tell you, John, um, 
I think your book on Carter, his very best, you're such a good storyteller, and you've captured so many moments in Carter's life and career uh, that uh, were fascinating for me to read. I, when did you first meet uh, Jimmy Carter? Do you, do you remember the first occasion you had to be with him? Well, uh, the first time I ever shook his hand uh, when we were shaking hands in this country was in the summer of 1978 when I was an intern uh, in the speechwriting office uh, of this White House, but I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. talk to him at all. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of grew disenchanted with Carter, uh, like so many uh, people. And um, then in 2000, when I was writing a column for Newsweek, uh, I um, did a column. Uh, I went over and saw him on a Habitat for Humanity site in New York City, and I did a column about after interviewing him about the Middle East, and that really was it. And then in 2000, early 2015, I'm in a book club in New York, and we were reading a book about Camp David, and um, somebody in my book group knew Jason Carter, um, had uh, worked. Uh, on his gubernatorial campaign in 2014. And he got Jason to bring President Carter to our book group, which was very exciting for us. And when uh, I heard him talk not just about Camp David, but about his human rights policy, I realized this guy has been dealt a a real raw deal from uh, from history. First of all, nobody had written a full-length biography of him. You know, they'd bit off a chunk here on his post-presidency, a uh, book about his White House from uh, Stu Eisenstadt, a you know, senior aide. Um, good book. These are all good books, but nobody had sort of pulled the whole thing together. And it turned out that my editor at Simon & Schuster, the late Alice Mayhew, had, was Jimmy Carter's editor. And so when she heard about this, uh, you know, my being so impressed by, by Carter at our book group, and by that time, he was in his early 90s. He was sharp as a tack. Um, she said, well, you've got to do this. I mean, this is just the perfect book for you. And then so she sort of smoothed the way. And I got a huge amount of access to the entire Carter family. And uh, Rosalind Carter is such a formidable, impressive, wonderful woman. She uh, gave me... Um, uh, the love letters, the rather steamy love letters that Jimmy Carter wrote her when he was in the Navy after they were first married. And uh, so that was when I knew that I was going to have an opportunity here to to do something really, um, really unusual. Um, and and uh, that cooperation uh, was very helpful, but I also I spent an enormous amount of time at the Carter Library in Atlanta and very much enjoyed my time in Georgia. And then I, I was in Plains and interviewed them there as well as in Atlanta and had dinner with them uh, on a few occasions and traveled with them to Memphis, where we all worked on a Habitat for Humanity site. Uh, and, you know, my my respect for for Carter kept growing, but not just because I was spending time with him. It kept growing because I, I was spending a lot of time at the Carter Library and other libraries, okay. the Georgia State Archive, uh, and, uh, you know, I, and finding things about this man and his record that consistently surprised me. Here's a uh, I think this is as close to a thesis statement of what your book is as we could come. You'll tell me if I'm wrong. The lazy shorthand on Carter is that he was an inept president and a great former president. In fact, Carter's White House performance is underrated, and his post-presidency, while path-breaking and inspirational, is slightly overrated in part because after leaving office, he has controlled many fewer levers of power. Um, So you, in the book... Uh, do talk about some of his greatest achievements as president, things that still uh, live with us uh, as are part of our lives today. But if I can, John, I want to go back to the very beginning for a moment. One of the things that I think really struck me 
in a powerful way was you paint such a vivid picture of the life that he lived in archery and then in Plains, Georgia, as a very young boy. He really did. He wasn't in poverty. His family was better off than many. But he was a kid who went barefoot to school, who lived in uh, without electricity in some case. I mean, his the beginnings of his life are hard for us to imagine when we think about the international stature that he achieved uh, as he continued his uh, career. And I love that part of the book. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Um, so I got completely fascinated, not just by the political stuff, but by life in Georgia uh, in the um, first half of the 20th century, you know, uh, uh, up to, well, I, you know, I take Georgia all the way through the end of his governorship at the beginning of 1975, but um, it, it, it's such a fascinating place. And I, I just became really interested in it. And I concluded pretty early on that Jimmy Carter effectively lived in three centuries. Uh, he was born in 1924. You know, he just turned 96. Uh, and he, but it might as well have been the 19th century, or it might as, it could have been, you know, as Carter joked with me at one point, it could have been when Jesus Christ was alive because they had no electricity, no running water, you know, on a farm that in a community, Archery, Georgia, just outside of Plains. Now, Plains at that time had, you know, 400 people and archery had about, you know, 40 in the, in the whole place. And this was a different world. Now they did have some of the, some of the new conveniences of the 20th century. Like they had a telephone with a party line that they shared with, you know, other people. Interestingly, uh, almost wrote a book on this at one point, uh, farms got some of the first telephone uh, lines and they would uh, use chicken wire um, for, uh, for the, the you know the the phone lines um, and they had a car because his father was a for the community a well-to-do farmer and merchant um, but it was a different world and of course they were living in a feudal system that was ju- just one step up from slavery and um, his father was a, a like so many people in that area, was a white supremacist. His mother, uh, with whom he had a fraught relationship, which is where I start the book, his mother um, was a very unusual, uh, eccentric, and wonderful person who, when he was president, went on Johnny Carson all the time. She was so amusing. Miss Lillian, uh, she was a nurse, and she took care of black uh, patients for free, and her husband kind of reluctantly supported that, though he called her Eleanor, teasing her that she was like Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, and um, she would take Jimmy to black churches. But after Miss Lillian died, Jimmy acknowledged uh, um, that he he really uh, he knew a woman named Rachel Clark better than his own mother. Rachel Clark was a black farmhand uh, on their property, lived on their property. Her husband was the foreman uh, who signed her name with an X. And Jimmy Carter says that he learned about the natural world from her. And remember, he was the greatest environmental president since Theodore Roosevelt and, and uh, an unbelievably good environmental governor for the state of Georgia, he basically protected the rivers in Georgia. Uh, and, uh, and, and if you ever enjoy going, you know, recreation on a Georgia river, including in, you know, Atlanta, <laughs> you know, thank Jimmy Carter, because it wouldn't be what it is if it wasn't for him. In any event, he learned all of this from, uh, Rachel Clark, and she also taught him about faith. And, you know, his mother didn't really think much of church. And a lot of his religious comes partly from his father, but in large part from Rachel Clark, um, uh, who uh, picked cotton faster than anyone in Sumter County, they said. Uh, women could pick more cotton than, faster than men because of their, ma- their dexterity. And she was she was the best 
Um, but um, and he stayed friends with her until the day she died. And then many of his playmates were were black. Um, and he tells this. Uh, he wrote a poem. You know, he has a book of poetry, and uh, I use some of the poetry in 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 my book. Um, a, a, a wonderful poem. Um, not all of his poems are great, but there are, you know, there are a couple that are really good, more, maybe more than a couple. This one is called The Pasture Gate, and it, it depicts a situation where um, he has these uh, black playmates, and um, uh, one day, and they're, they're basically equals, although they can't use the outhouse. Uh, they have to go in the woods to you know, uh, relieve themselves because of um, the ridiculous Jim Crow strictures. But in, in many things, they, as boys, and this is common in the South, they, they could be on equal terms to a certain point. Then it, when they're about like 12, um, they're walking out to the pasture and the, the black kids open the gate so that Jimmy can go through first. And at first he thought, is this a practical joke? Do they have like a tripwire there? Are they going to push me down when I go through it? Because uh, they would wrestle, box, or, you know, horse around. And then they just let him through. And, and uh, what had happened was their parents had told them, he, he's Mr. Jimmy now. You know, you, yeah. you have to treat him differently. And when so, AD said, don't call me, I don't want to call you Mr. Jimmy. Um, he said, fine. Um, but that's what they were taught to do. You know, you know, there's an interesting put if you when you push uh, Carter's life ahead a number of years, um, it, when he meets Andy Young for the first time, the story that you tell is that Andy immediately uh, felt that the rest of the Carter, he met Rosalind at that point. I, I'm, I'm not sure who else in the family, but, but Andy thought that they seemed very comfortable around black people. He might've thought that about Jimmy Carter as well, but, but there was a story about a, a sheriff, a South Georgia sheriff who was, a, a, according to C.T. Vivian, the worst sheriff that the civil rights workers encountered uh, named Fred Chapel And, and Jimmy Carter made the mistake of saying to Andy Young, oh, yeah, Fred Chappell's a friend of mine. And uh, and for years, Andy had a hard time getting past the fact that Jimmy Carter had said nice things about the sheriff who civil who the civil rights leaders had despised. Interesting. Yeah, it's so interesting. So Andy Young, who gave me a wonderful blurb on the back of my book and and uh, loves Jimmy Carter, um, he in telling that story, he was recognizing that for uh, 18 years from the time he came home from the Navy after his father died in 1953 until he was sworn in as governor in January of 1971, Carter basically ducked the civil rights movement. And Sheriff Chapel, uh, you know, you mentioned C.T. Vivian, Dr. King called him, quote, the meanest man in the world. Because after the Albany yeah. campaign, or during the Albany campaign, the sheriff, of, uh, the police chief in Albany, shipped uh, King and some other civil rights workers to the Sumter County Jail in Americas, and where they were badly mistreated by this sheriff chapel, who later in in 1963 and 65, when the movement moved to Americas, he actually used cattle prods on 14-year-old girls. I mean, this, the, in some ways he made, you know, like, uh, you know, Bull Connor look good by comparison. And and so what Carter was not, he didn't say, he wasn't a racist. He'd become an integrationist early when he was in the Navy. And he, you know, he tried to integrate his church. But especially when he became a state senator from what he describes as the most conservative district in, in Georgia, when the New York Times would try to get a you know, comment from him about the movement, he ducked. And he said to me, you know, I never claimed to be part of the civil rights movement. Uh, and then yeah. he runs a pretty unattractive campaign for governor in 1970. But during that campaign, he, he meets Daddy King. He never met Martin Luther King. 
he meets Daddy King. They kind of connect, even though Daddy King has endorsed Carl Sanders, his opponent, the former governor. And then Carter becomes the Jimmy Carter that we know now. And he basically spends the second half of his life making up for having uh, not spoken out on, on racial injustice in the first half. I, you are, you are just leading me into what I want to talk with you about in the next segment of the show. We got, I do have to take a break before I do, John, though, I, you talk about the poetry of Jimmy Carter and you had access to a lot of things that other people may not have, although he published some of his poetry. I love this. I'm going to read this going into the break. He was very romantic about Rosalind early in their courtship. And you quote, you have in your book, one of the poems when they're on a double date at the movie theater, if you don't mind my reading it. Carter writes to her about her, I'd pay to sit behind her, blind to what was on the screen, and watch the image flicker upon her hair. I'd glow when her diminished voice would clear my muddled thoughts like lightning flashing in a gloomy sky. And they've been married for many, many years. Yeah. That's from Jonathan Alter's beautiful yeah. new book, his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. We'll be back with more. Uh, with John Alter in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. On this special edition of the show today, we're talking to uh, Jonathan Alter, who is an author, a TV commentator. You see him on NBC, on MSNBC. He's also the author of three New York Times bestselling books. Uh, his book, The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope, is a wonderful book about FDR. Um, I think it was named, John, a notable book of the year by the New York Times, was it not? It was. There's a lot about Warm Springs in there, by the way. Yeah, 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 which is a remarkable. I've talked on this show about how everybody here needs to visit it. Uh, you uh, really wrote basically two books about uh, Barack Obama and now the new book, His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Uh, when we uh, pause for the break, uh, you, you talked about that 1970 uh, governor's race and how that was a, t a moment, a great moment in Jimmy Carter's uh, awakening, really, throughout that campaign. He had lost a race four years early, f earlier for governor. Um, and as he turned to run for the office again, he decided he was going to have to be pragmatic in how he ran and to an extent that he, to this day, uh, has said is one of the things that he regrets most. Uh, he did. He had, in some ways, uh, do some race baiting with his with uh, Carl Sanders, um, including a picture of Carl Sanders posing with uh, an Atlanta Hawk basketball player, an African American basketball player. Uh, it was a. It, these were not great moments for Jimmy Carter. But as you point out, John. It was also a moment of awakening where he realized he had to. It was time for him uh, to speak up about race in Georgia. Let's play just a little clip of the inaugural address that he gave in 1971 uh, in which he made it clear to the people of the state the direction he wanted to go. Here's Jimmy Carter. At the end of a long campaign, I believe I know our people of this state as well as anyone could. Based on this knowledge of Georgians, North and South, rural and urban, liberal and conservative, I say to you quite frankly that the time for racial discrimination is over. Our people have already made this major and difficult decision, but we cannot underestimate the challenge of hundreds of minor decisions yet to be made. Our inherent human charity and our religious beliefs will be taxed to the limit. 
no poor, rural, weak, or black person should ever have to bear the additional burden of being deprived of the opportunity of an education, a job, or simple justice. Um, John, that was a remarkable speech. It's interesting when you listen to it, um, as I'm sure you did again when you were researching your book, how tepid the applause is from a large <laughs> gathering of people uh, in the audience. Uh, but on the front page of the New York Times the next day, uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, uh, becoming governor was news, and it called him one of a new generation of moderates taking office in the South. Uh, it really was a turning point in his life, John. Yeah, this was a, a big deal. So he had believed in integration for a long time. It was not a conversion, but it had not been politically possible, he felt, to embrace it. And he had beaten a more liberal candidate for governor who, who had much yeah. more black support. Uh, and he had appealed to the rural white vote, um, and he had even gone to sea to pay a call on the co-founder of the Georgia White Citizens Council. So, you know, I don't sugarcoat any of this. I, I, I believe in portraying uh, Carter and anyone in their entirety. So th this is really warts and all. And this period in 1970 was Carter at his, at, at his least impressive in this campaign. But as he said to me, look, I could have denounced these segregationists, denounced, you know, Richard Russell. He was going for the Richard Russell vote, the, the legendary senator and governor of Georgia who, who was Lyndon Johnson's mentor in the Senate, and, and, but he was a segregationist. And Carter said, I could have denounced him, but then I never would have been governor. So he was making a political calculation. But then once he is elected and he knows he can't run for reelection, then he can be the Carter that he really wants to be. That almost that speech almost didn't happen. That line almost didn't get used. And there's a wonderful story behind it that involves a, a, a very eccentric pilot, Cessna pilot, businessman in Georgia who uh, uh, owned nursing homes, was close to the King family, and he was Carter's pilot and his biggest donor. And he, ar he, he arguably made Jimmy Carter governor by flying him to these rural counties that he never would have been able to uh, get to to pull this upset in 1970 over Carl Sanders. And I think that he also in some ways made him president. This guy's name is David Rabhan. And what happened is that on the last day of the 1970 gubernatorial campaign, Carter said, David, you've been so you know, good to me. You fly me all over the state. Uh, is there anything I can do for you? And Rabin says, as a matter of fact, you can. And he took out an old aerial map and he wrote on it, the time for racial discrimination in Georgia is over. And he said, I want you to sign this and say this in your inaugural address. And Carter did, even though Charlie Kerbo, you know, his top advisor was telling him not to do it. He had plenty of people around him who were, uh, you know, basically George Wallace supporters who thought it was crazy for him to say something like this. It sounds like nothing now, but at the time it was, it was huge. He says it. And then what happens is the white state senators turn their backs and walk out of his inaugural and the Atlanta constitution, Atlanta journal, they missed this. My book is the first time uh, that this Story, that part of the story has ever been told. Uh, uh, the reporters just missed it, and a former state senator named Bobby Rowan told me about this. They staged a walkout, and then when he saw them afterward, uh, uh, these uh, senators said to uh, Bobby Rowan, that end-loving bastard betrayed us. And meanwhile, the few uh, fewer uh, black Georgians in the audience that day turned to each other. And, and as uh, Ruth Samuels, who was uh, an, an African-American uh, government official who died last year and gave Rita. a great interview. Rita. I'm sorry, Rita, Rita Samuels. Uh, I know yeah. Ruth Samuels. Um, as she told me uh, afterwards, she said in the audience, 
the the black Georgians were going, he said, what? He said, they couldn't believe it. He said, what? And they're turning to each other. And and then he becomes, you know, the on race, the most liberal governor uh, in uh, up to that point in the history of Georgia. And he, he integrates the federal bench uh, when he goes around to, you know, give uh, speeches often in Georgia, as you know, they're in country clubs, right? And uh, they say, uh, you know, we don't want Freeman. That was his, his black driver, his state trooper. We don't want him. Can you bring another driver? And he said, if you don't have free, Freeman, tell him the governor's not coming. And so uh, with his driver, he integrated every country club, major country club in Georgia, plus pretty much every other institution in Georgia. And then he put up Dr. King's picture and that of other uh, uh, black Georgians in the state capitol, and the KKK was demonstrating outside. So he became this great governor yeah. on race uh, after that kind of shameful campaign. So um, I want, I'm really glad you told that story um, uh, about uh, the white senators turning and walking away from the inauguration, because I had never heard that story until I, I read it from you. Um, let's take another break right now, but when we come back, I'll continue my conversation with Jonathan Alter. His new book is his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. John Alter is with us. His book, His Very Best, Jimmy Carter Life, the first full biography of Jimmy Carter. John, before the break, we were talking about Leroy Johnson and the impact he had at the Georgia Capitol, integrating it to some extent. Uh, and you say there's another great story about Leroy Johnson and Lester Maddox. Right. So uh, when Carter becomes governor, uh, Lester Maddox, the former governor, is now lieutenant governor and supposedly at that time, you know, uh, head of the uh, president of the Georgia State Senate. Carter wants to strip him of his power to a uh, named committee chairs, basically, of uh, the powerful committees in the Georgia State Senate. Uh, and um, so there's a, a vote coming up on whether Carter will be able to strip Maddox of his power. And Leroy Johnson, Senator Johnson, goes to the governor, Governor Carter, and says, I'd like to be chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is really powerful. And and this would be the first time an African-American state senator really had any power. And any African-American had statewide power. And Carter says, well, I've already got somebody for that slot. You can be head of the temperance committee. And, and you know, Johnson says, a temperance committee? I'm not a big drinker. Like, there's no power in that. No. <laughs> and so he goes to Maddox and this guy named Culver Kidd, who was like a state senator, old pal from Central Casting. He went on a in a toga on the floor of the Georgia State Senate at one point, and later was convicted with Carter's help. Uh, a crooked guy, but very powerful at that time. And they cut a deal, and they say, if, if you you know, vote with us, not Carter, we'll give you Senate Judiciary. So, so Leroy Johnson goes back to Carter and says, Maddox is going to give me this committee. And Carter can't believe it. He says, you're making a deal with Lester Maddox? The, the biggest segregationist in, in Georgia's seen in recent history, which side are you on? And Leroy said, I'm on the side of getting power for, you know, black people in Georgia. And, and he cut the deal with Maddox and uh, Carter lost that round. He went on a lot of other things, but he lost that round to Maddox and Leroy Johnson became chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, and uh, I think Carter learned a, a lesson from that episode. I have time for one more story that I want to tell, uh, have you talk with us about. And it, and it relates to Carter as he's preparing. He's already decided he's going to run for president. And I think many, many people know the famous story about uh, Carter deciding as early as 1973 that he is going to run for 
president, uh, which everybody thinks is outlandish. Hamilton Jordan uh, creates that that famous memo about how he can win. Uh, but but what I think the story I'd love to focus on for just a few minutes, you tell us that on a May night in seventy three, no seventy four, Ted Kennedy is going to be the keynote speaker at the University of Georgia's Law Day program. And he comes to spend the night at the mansion with Jimmy Carter uh, before that. And Hunter Thompson shows up, the great gonzo journalist for Rolling Stone. And, uh, And so here we have Ted Kennedy, Hunter Thompson, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter ends up... Um, stiffing Ted Kennedy. He's going to fly him over to to Athens, but in fact, he decides not to do it at all, leaving Ted Kennedy to have to figure out for himself, right, how to get over to Athens. But now Hunter Thompson is fascinated by Carter. So he decides to go over to watch this Law Day speech. And in a minute, we're going to play an excerpt of it. Um, But it is, you tell us, probably one of Jimmy Carter's most important, if not his most important, speech, largely improvised. Why was that a big and important moment for Jimmy Carter, John? Well, first of all, that, uh, you know, fight, uh, bad chemistry between Carter and Kennedy is a huge theme of my book. And in the sections on the presidency, it becomes really, really important, not just because Kennedy ran against Carter in 1980, but Healthcare failed because of it. Um, they got some other things accomplished together that were very important that I won't go into right now. But so that day, Kennedy gives a kind of a bad speech. He was often a very great speecher, speaker, but that day he gave a bad speech. And there are these other luncheon speakers droning on at, at, at the University of Georgia Law School. And Hunter Thompson goes out to his car to get some wild turkey. And, and then anybody he, he would you know, rage against Nixon and Watergate, anybody he met in the parking lot. And then he'd go back in and sit for a while in the luncheon, get bored again, go back out, get wild turkey. Carter gets up, starts to give this speech where he attacks the criminal justice system of Georgia, attacks all these lawyers. And Hunter Thompson goes to his car. He gets his tape recorder and he makes a tape recording of this speech. And then over the next two years, he pl- he's the most, the coolest reporter in America, writes for Rolling Stone. Everybody in our business loved him. So for the next two years, he champions Jimmy Carter. He plays this tape for him until the end of his life. He loved Jimmy Carter, as did Greg Allman and Bob Dylan and all these you know, other people you wouldn't necessarily think of. And, and I argue that Hunter Thompson, by taping the speech that you're about to hear, helped make Jimmy Carter president. He put him on the map nationally. Yes. He is talking to some of the most distinguished attorneys in the state of Georgia who have come for this speech. So in front of that distinguished audience, among other things, Carter talks about the moment in the state Senate when he got up to speak out on the barriers to voting that black people faced in the state of Georgia. Let's listen. And I spoke in that chamber, fearful of the news media, reporting it back home, but overwhelmed with a commitment then in favor of the abolition of that artificial barrier to the rights of an American citizen. And I remember the thing that I used in my speech, that that a a black pencil salesman on the outer door of the Fenton County Courthouse could make a better judgment about who ought to be sheriff and two highly educated professors at Georgia Southwestern College, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who was perhaps despised by many in this room because he shook up our social structure that benefited us and demanded simply that black citizens be treated the same as white citizens. Robert greeted with approbation and accolades by the Georgia Bar Association or the Alabama Bar Association, he was greeted with horror. Um, that was a remarkable moment in his life. Yeah, yes, it was. And there was so much else in that speech. You know, we talk about criminal justice reform yeah. uh, a lot nowadays. There was a lot in that speech about that. 
uh, and he quoted uh, the lyrics uh, from the Bob Dylan song, I Ain't Gonna Work Maggie's Farm No More. And, you know, he explained why that was important to him. And, and um, Hunter Thompson's articles uh, about that speech and about Carter in the next couple of years um, just conveyed to uh, reporters, other people paying attention, who then could convey it to the you know, larger voting populace, that this was a different kind of guy and a different kind of Southerner. And that, you know, there was a connection here that he had. By this time, he he was very friendly with Daddy King and Credit King because uh, Daddy King, when Carter invited him to the governor's office, he broke down in tears because he had been, you know, a prominent prominent man in Atlanta for a long time, for decades, and he'd never been to the governor's office. He'd never met the governor. And, and, but there were many substantive things that Carter was also doing as, as governor. And, uh, and then later as, you know, as president, uh, in, in, uh, he signed a bill, for instance, as president that curbed redlining, terrible problem. Um, the Community Reinvestment Act of 1978, really important piece of legislation. And, you know, so I, I try to, you know, he's not a saint. And there, there are going to be some people who love Jimmy Carter who won't like parts of my book. Uh, but I, I, on balance, the decency, the seriousness of purpose, the vision, the uh, sense of what government can and should do, even if nobody is paying attention, uh, really impressed me. And I think that the post-Watergate press corps, I think, you, you know, our colleagues were a little too young to cover the Carter administration, but they did not cover themselves in glory. They had just taken down Nixon, right? And so they assumed that everybody was going to be a crook like Nixon. And that was the way they kind of approached his presidency. And, you know, Carter, Burt Lance, there were some, some, uh, loans and his banking practice in Georgia that didn't look too good, but you know this was compared to what's going on now. It's just it's such small potatoes, and and yet they, when Carter was president, they would inflate these things, or inflate the fact that you know he was uh, confronted by a killer rabbit at a pond in Plains. You know, take the or these little things that would happen to him, and so. And that overshadowed what was going on in a substantive way. So part of what I tried to do in the book, Bill, is to, you know, tell fun stories like Hunter Thompson and or, you know, he would he rock and roll fans loved him because he would raise money for his campaign by having these concerts of, you know, uh, uh, Willie Nelson or Charlie Daniels or this one uh, that was very important where he'd stand up and say, uh, I have three things to say to you. My name is Jimmy Carter. I'm running for president. Ladies and gentlemen, the Almond Brothers. <laughs> and everybody would go crazy because, <laughs> because the politician wasn't going to give a speech. He was going to let them hear music that he actually appreciated. You know? And so he became very cool. And that's why I put the Andy Warhol of Jimmy Carter on, on the cover of my book, because I wanted to convey to people that whatever you know they may think of Carter now, whatever he did that maybe they didn't like, the hostages, the bad economy, whatever they think about him or think about his family, that there was a time when he was hugely exciting and, and a huge deal for Georgia. And in 1980, when he lost almost every other state, he only carried five or six states. Georgia was one of them because I think Georgians knew that this was a uh, a man who uh, had led an epic American life and and was a true proud son of Georgia. Jonathan Alter, um, I think it's really particularly important that as we enter the last phase of a presidential campaign here that has been marked by toxicity, um, lies, um, uh, tearing the country apart, that you, you've written a biography of a man who, as you point out, wasn't perfect. And those of us who have spent time with Jimmy Carter and, and have watched him in action understand uh, that he can be, uh, aside from some of the policies that he may have uh, misfired on, can be a, a, 
somewhat difficult person to deal with Definitely. here and there. Definitely. Uh, you're, what your book does tell us, his very best life, Jimmy Carter, a life, is that uh, character and conviction in a president of the United States are traits that really matter. And that's what you give us in this biography of Jimmy Carter. I'm, I'm really grateful to you for having me on and letting me talk about him because he's so complex and there is a prickly part of him, you know, beneath the smile is a, 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 a person <laughs> that few people know. And I, I try to introduce everybody to, and, and, but I have to say that, you know, I so enjoyed my time at the Carter library. I was there the day that Trump came down the escalator and I, uh, uh, MSNBC asked me to analyze Trump's announcement of his candidacy uh, at a studio in Atlanta. And I went there and, you know, he's attacking rapists and murderers and basically offending Mexico. And I'm thinking this guy's a demagogue, you know, and would not, it's not his politics. It's he's a demagogue and he plays on race. And then I go back to the Carter papers and those papers kind of cleanse the toxicity. You know, they, 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 it, it was going back to the library is like having a nice soothing shower because whatever Carter's faults, there was a decent, a core decency there. And he became kind of comfort food for, for me. And I think now he can be comfort food for readers. That's, that's my hope is that people who want a vacation from this toxicity can find some, uh, some comfort in, uh, in the life of Jimmy Carter. You've been very generous in giving us so much time for this conversation, and I really do highly recommend that our listeners, if they want to read a wonderful biography of Jimmy Carter, who's meant so much to Georgia for so many decades, uh, read his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life by Jonathan Altered. Um, thanks again for being with us today, Jonathan. It was such it was such a pleasure, Bill. It's just a great show, and I really appreciate you having me on. All right. As I say every day at the end of our shows, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and go get a flu shot. Bye-bye, Jonathan. <laughs>